This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Hamilton, we're at 68 already. Like, holy crap. Where did the time go? Yeah. And, you know, thank you to our listeners. We've been receiving feedback. Uh, you know, we, we talked uh, pr- on a previous one, the one with Mike Bridger, about this horn aging stuff. I've got some emails on that. So we're working really hard on putting something together for for that. Um, so thank you to everyone for your feedback. But just keep, keep talking to us. Uh, for anyone that doesn't follow us, get over to Instagram. We have a new Instagram page. Uh, page or whatever thingy you call it talk is cheap uh <laughs> look us up on instagram talk is cheap i'm not a social media guy as you all know but um steve and greg do a great job over there but uh, look us up on talk is cheap on instagram like and follow we do have that like and follow steve what's our program there once we hit a thousand likes on talk is cheap we're giving away a prize is that right uh, it's a thousand likes on talk is cheap ten thousand on wild sheep and 2500 on one campfire we're we're getting close slow down a little bit but uh, yeah, you need to like all three pages. All three are wild sheep, uh, and tag two friends or three friends. So and so simple. It's easy. It's super easy. Yeah, you can. Uh, we got the 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 Sitka jacket is uh, a prize. Got a Yeti cooler, and uh, we got some wild sheep swag as uh, as surprises for the winners. So once we hit any of those metrics, anyone that's complied, we're going to draw a winner. You get to pick one of those three things. And then we hit the other metric, same thing, and then eventually all three. So, yeah, so three great prizes to win, um, three chances. And, and uh, yeah, we just need to hit the numbers. Once we're there, we're, we're good to go, and we're, we're getting there. So keep it up and get a chance to win some really cool prizes from our sponsors. Yeah. Speaking uh, so, of winning prizes, speaking of winning prizes, that membership drive we got is kicking butt. It is. Yeah. So this is kind of unique. So, you know, we've always give away some, you know, packs and stuff like that, which is great. You know, people love it, but people said, let's do something a little bit different this time. So um, people said, let's do a trip or, a, you know, hunting trip or something like that. So uh, this is a really, really cool one. Uh, it's uh, thanks to our sponsor, Wood Wheaton Super Center out of Prince George. They've underwritten this for us and we're able to offer a membership drive. It runs until august 13th so sign up today and you can renew extend upgrade um there's no limit um so everyone's eligible to win and uh you get an opportunity to first prize is uh a eight hour sturgeon fishing trip on the fraser river with streamline um so just a great opportunity that's uh, i think we got almost almost two thousand dollars in prizes uh, Frontiers men, Frontiers men gear stepped up with a custom ridge line caper knife. This thing is stunning. It's absolutely it's not beautiful. even on the market yet, is it? No, uh, it might be now. But when we launched this at the time, uh, oh. the ridge line is a brand new line that yeah. um, Tanner had come up with. Um, so yeah, this is a, a first uh, for them. And then the uh, the third place prize is a WSSBC swag package with a Claymore headlamp. Again, thanks to uh, Wood Wheaton for underwriting all this. So yeah, really cool opportunity to join the society. Uh, membership start as, well, if you buy a three year for 150 bucks, it's 50 bucks a year. You can get a one year auto renew for 55. Life member, come join us for life. You got lots of cool benefits. We got a life member raffle going on right now. Um, I, actually, well, it's 
uh, I guess it's going to be done by the time this releases. But uh, that one was a Silver Sage um, Pronghorn Hunt in Alberta and a Yeti mug. So $100 raffle ticket, you get basically $50 Yeti mug and a chance to win that um, that Pronghorn Hunt in Alberta. So yeah, great, great opportunities for life members. And then if you want, you can take it all the way up to Monarch and you can say, hey, we're going to join the ranks of Monarch and we want to our money to go here so you can designate where those funds are going to go for wildlife conservation so never been a better time to join the the society um would love to have you um and we're on our march to 1500 once we hit 1500 members as well we're going to give away a yeti cooler so tons of prizes tons of giveaway thanks to our sponsors and um just doing a lot of great work for conservation in the province our members are making a difference uh, I say this often, Steve, we talk about this, the $318,000 that we put on the ground, not that we committed, not that we thought about, no, those were dollars spent last year in British Columbia for wild sheep conservation. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a sheep hunter, uh, well, there's lots of other species that benefited from that. Money uh, absolutely. There are like, uh, especially like with the, with the Granby project, right? We, we bought that chunk of land there with, uh, the nature trust silt and, uh, God, there's, there's badgers seen on there and they're Sarah listed in Canada, right? They're, they're endangered. Yeah. They figured there's less than 200 badgers left in the province. And uh, one of our past directors took photos of one on the property. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's multi-level species that uh, benefit from your dollars. Yeah. Very cool. So never been a better time to join. We'd love to have you join the ranks. And what does membership do? Does it pay the bills? Well, not really, but what it does, it gives us a voice for conservation in the province. So when we show up in the uh, minister's office and we say, hey, we have a concern here about wildlife, and we say we have 1,500 members, they pay attention. When we show up and we have 50 members or 100 members, we're not as impactful. So um, your voice- Especially, when, tr- especially like, it's not only about the numbers, it's about the dollars on the ground. When we say we put over a quarter of a million dollars on the ground in your province, people listen all levels of government listen yeah absolutely and uh one thing about it is we haven't had the shows or anything lately but we truly have a wild sheep family it's a very very inclusive group and um you know we'd love to have you join the ranks so something to think about uh if you're considering joining the society there's never been a better time than right now so uh this is episode 68 very cool episode um dr adam ford he's at a ubc okanagan he runs um his own lab out of there, uh, out of UBC Okanagan, Okanagan, called the Wire Lab, which is the Wild Wildlife Restoration Ecology Lab. Um, he's uh, an associate professor of biology in UBC Okanagan under the Faculty of Science. Um, Dr. Ford's students are, are renowned. They're doing a ton of great work in the province. Um, he's mentoring them and, and getting them going the right direction. Um, so we've previously on the podcast, we've had Clayton Lamb on, who's worked closely with Adam. We've had um, Shora, Larvalek, Siobhan. Siobhan. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So lots of Adam students on. So it was time to have Adam on, and he didn't disappoint. Interesting, um, Adam serves on MWAC, which is the uh, Minister of Wildlife Advisory Council. And so he has a direct connection with the Minister of Flinrow. He's involved with uh, making recommendations to the Minister on Wildlife. Um, so very important position in the province in terms of steering where the Minister's um, going to take uh, wildlife uh, management in the province. So just a, a real great chat with Adam, a uh, very down-to-earth guy. You know, you know, Adam, he's a PhD, and he's just so relatable. Um, 
a hunter uh, and, and just a, a really good human being. So really enjoyed this chat with Adam, and I think you're going to enjoy it too. So episode 69, Dr. Adam Ford. 68. No, 68. I get the all-knowing bad stare from Stephen. Okay, so episode <laughs> 68 with Dr. Adam Ford. Enjoy. If we told you tomorrow that elk, black bear, and bighorn sheep were next, would you speak up? Wildlife needs to be managed by science and not by emotion. And you don't have to be a hunter to take part in this movement. You just have to want sound management of our wildlife in BC. Go to wildsheepsociety.com slash act now to use your voice and demand that BC not use our wildlife as pawns in a game of social management. Act now. Or the things that you love could be next. Professor Ford, welcome to the show. Great to great to have you on today. I'm glad we could connect. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this. Awesome. So it seems like we've had about 16 year students, so we've never had the master himself on. <laughs> and uh, and uh, no, no I, all joking aside and respectfully, uh, Doctor Ford, uh, it's an an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Um, and you're just such an easy, relatable guy to talk to. You know, sometimes I forget who I'm dealing with, and and uh, so. You know, really grateful for all the work that you're doing in British Columbia for wildlife. And um, we're hoping to dive into that today, just kind of who you are and where you came from. And then, you know, kind of where you see the role that you play. And, and you play a very important role. And I think a lot of our listeners will be uh, maybe don't quite get to see that every day. So it's going to be fun to talk about your role in the province and, and how you're helping to form this new uh, wildlife management uh, program in, in BC as well. So uh, with that... Um, welcome. How's, how's things in Kelowna? Oh, good there. It's a little cool this week. Um, the backyard rink is just melted and destroyed and then refrozen again, but, uh, yeah, uh, we're doing well and, and the signs of early signs of spring are here. So I'm thinking about, you know, that, <clears throat> that spring food, uh, independence, uh, program that we do around the house and, and what kind of seeds I need to be starting and, what we can start growing it. There's always a, a lesson there for, you know, so I always screw things up is basically what I'm going to say <laughs> in the garden. And, and so there's always something to learn for the next year. And I just try to remember to, to remember my lesson. So that's where I'm putting my mind to right now. Very cool. Uh, we had Greg McHale on the podcast uh, just before here, and he was talking about sustainability and, you know, growing stuff and, you know, do it in your condo, like, you know, put out a, a pot and, or a plant or whatever and, and grow some stuff. And so I, I'm, I'm planting my arm garden, I call it. Um, so I had a 12 by six, so 70 square feet plot and I've, I'm tripling it this year. So I'm calling it the Arma garden. So they're, they're just, you know, um, <laughs> backyard, backyard, um, uh, planter boxes, but they're massive. So what kind of setup do you have there? Do you have a, a proper garden or do you have garden boxes or what, what do you, uh, kind of a mishmash, you know, we have, uh, I don't know, it's probably <clears throat> 30 feet by 30 feet in the, in the sunniest corner of the backyard and try to keep the, the kids and the dog out of it and, and just have some drip irrigation going. So last year I went, full on with tomatoes and I think we're still eating on them. We just finished up uh, our kale in a nice uh, family day venison faux that we made uh, this week. And um, and then lots of lots of the fresh herbs that I like to cook with. So that's kind of the thing that I miss most about that summer food is mm -hmm. I get those herbs going on your on your salmon on the barbecue and it just brings all that food back to life again. It's, it's so nice. 
Oh yeah. We up here in PG, we, you imagine we, we don't really have the, the heat that you guys do in Kelowna. So I've, I've got uh, the strawberries do really, really well here. And <laughs> so we have strawberries, we have raspberries and I, I get those blue 50 gallon drums, you know, the, the ones that water comes in and I cut them in half and they make great barrels for potatoes. Yes. So potatoes do really well here. And my neighbor, it's frustrating, like literally right next to me. He's got the full drip irrigation and like he grows just pounds and pounds and pounds of whatever he wants. And he'll routinely look over the fence at my garden and, hey, do you want some carrots or beans or peas? I'm like, yeah, okay. It's kind of depressing because you're doing the same thing I am. Like he's come over and helped me with the soils and all that. And that's just doesn't work for me but yeah. hey I, I don't complain when he offers some of the bounty <laughs> yeah yeah no potatoes are great uh, we're trying to get a handle on that and and definitely drip irrigation is key because if you go away in the summer in the okanagan you come back it's just it's just bone dry right so got to have a, the water on a timer and um that really helps yeah, now you guys are creating work for me. I got all these ideas. I don't have an irrigation system. I am I totally am. telling Mel about this, this conversation. <laughs> awesome. Um, so you mentioned venison. I guess, uh, did you harvest the deer this past fall? Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a pretty good fall. Uh, we got a, a mule deer and a whitetail and some moose in the freezer too. Awesome. Yeah. That's a, a very solid fall. So... So with you, Adam, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you're a bit of an adult onset hunter. This was not something you grew up with. Is Am I correct in saying that? Uh, yeah. When did I start? It was probably uh, probably in my late 20s. I started with a small game and, and grouse. And uh, actually, yeah, it's hard to, hard to, where do I go back to? Um, I guess one, one start of this whole journey was... <clears throat> Uh, was as, as a, uh, I was a fishing guide for a few years in my early 20s and uh, just started thinking about we used to do some duck hunting out of that camp and um, you know I cleaned ducks at the end of the day and clean fish and everything and I just started looking around and you know I heard stories of, in my house growing up that grandpa used to hunt but it wasn't it kind of missed my my dad's or my parents generation so um, the stories were there and then you know, spending time in the boat with, with folks with an outdoor mentality and, and, uh, came to be one day that this, uh, real nice old timer said, Hey, Adam, if you catch me a 34 inch pike, I'll send you a gun. And, um, 34 inch pike wasn't that hard to catch. I mean, it was big for him and his experience growing up, but not for us at, at that camp. So we got into one not, not long after and good to his word. He, he was able to uh, send along a uh, a little shotgun to to someone who was legally able to hold it for me until I got my paperwork in order, and and that got me out to uh, a duck hunt, probably in my early 30s, and I just love that, like uh, the North Shore of Lake Erie, um, heading out in the morning, going to a like a registered blind sort of thing, and and hunting with a dog, and it was just thrilling. So that was the last time I duck hunted until this December. Um, but that really kind of got me going on it and just thinking about, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed spending time out outside, but bringing the outdoors and, and food together was kind of the motivation for me. Cool. So I want to go back and, and explore kind of 
you know, your upbringing, your formative years and, and your interest in wildlife and, and you touched on, you know, kind of your hunting experience as well there. But before we do that, can you can you share a little bit for our listeners? Um, I know who you are, uh, but you have a lot of uh, quote titles and, and, and do a lot of different things. So can you kind of touch on, you know, your role with UBC Okanagan uh, and then your role that you are serving currently with the... Uh, Minister's Wildlife Advisory Committee and just touch on some of the big things that you're involved in currently and starting with, I guess, the day job first. Okay, yeah. So the day job, the, the stuff that kind of pays the bills around the house here is I'm a faculty member at the University of British Columbia uh, in, in the Okanagan, at the Okanagan campus here in Kelowna. So I'm in the de uh, Department of Biology um, and I hold a Canada Research Chair in Wildlife Restoration Ecology, which the, we call the CRC. So the CRC program uh, is federal funding that goes to the university to offset the cost of my position and that frees up some of my teaching responsibilities or teaching duties and gives me a bit more time for research. Um, so that's quite quite nice if you're into research, which I am. So that gives us a bit more bandwidth to take on, say, like more graduate students and, and to get more involved in some of these uh, other projects around the province. Um, Adam, can I, can yeah. I just ask you a question around that? So with your role as the uh, Canadian Research Chair, and now I know you've we've had a number of your students, as we mentioned earlier, Siobhan's been on the show, Laura. Um, and so with regards to your work, um, do, do you, are you kind of the overseer or are you the, the mastermind? <laughs> How, like what kind of what, obviously the, the head of that, but what role do you play? Do you say, okay, we need work here and this is, and you develop the program, or, or or what does that look like? Or do you do research yourself? Yeah, all of those things. So it's okay. so it's not very clear cut in the in the job description. Um, and and people are successful in a lot of different ways. But generally, what what we do is um, the sort of, sort of my role, I guess, is is sort of the the glue that that sticks all these folks together. So I work with generally with a lot of graduate students. And people that have finished their graduate studies, so they finished their master's and their PhD, and now they're postdoctoral fellows. Um, so they're they're sort of temporary employees for you know a couple years at a time, but they're at, at a high level in their career with their with respect to their education. So there's these different levels of people moving through their careers, and they spend some time in the lab with us to kind of build up some skills and and then open up some doors for their next steps, be that more education or uh, back into the workforce, say with government consultants, um, yeah, the nonprofit sector, whatever it is. So um, my job is to sort of maintain some level of funding and to kind of hold a vision. Some of those projects can be pretty short, a couple of years at a time. So um, before students show up and after they leave for, you know, my job is to help maintain relationships with the community, with funders, with stakeholders to make sure the science is getting into the hands of people that need it and to look for the next project. Um, and then if I'm lucky, I get out in the field and get to get to join them on some of these cool field experiences. Um, I'd say the biggest hindrance there is really not my job, but just uh, getting time away from the house and, and from the family to, to get out into the field. Um, but it's certainly exciting to, to go on a capture or you know, go check out some some dead critter and try to find out what killed it. So that's generally the work of the students on, on a day to day level. And then, you know, they've got expenses that need to be approved. So there's all sorts of glamorous, you know, financial accounting and administration on the back end. But 
the outward looking stuff and building relationships and, and partnerships is really an exciting part. You know, it's, it's about the people as much as it is the land here and, um, and seeing how all those things fit together is pretty exciting. Well, and it sounds to me like there's, there'd be a fair amount of mentorship there as well, right? Like, so uh, how much would you say your job is that? Like, obviously, there's the administrative end, there's the managing everything, um, the outreach, the communications, but then obviously making sure these students are supported. So how much of your job would you say is mentorship? Yeah, it's it's a good chunk, probably, you know, 40% of my week. And, and that, that means different things to different people, right? Because so, like we have this idea of academic freedom, so people can really take this in a lot of different directions. It's not, it's not like we have a set task and everybody has to sort of fall in line. It's, um, I mean, they do have to graduate and they do have to say, if they're a graduate student, write a thesis and, and then generally a paper and share that with the community. <clears throat> but how they want to grow is really up to them and, and then what I can provide. So some people are very quantitative, so they may not need my help for that. Um, some people might need help with writing some people might need help with communication and and kind of being more independent as a scientist. So it comes in a lot of different forms. Seeing them work together is uh, also pretty exciting. So trying to bring in people that can complement the other folks that are already uh, in the group. Um, yeah, so so there is a lot of there is a lot of mentorship, but there's no sort of one way that that works for everybody. Cool. And then do you spend any time in the classroom or is it all research stuff through CR? Yeah. Generally speaking, uh, I teach one semester a year, which is glamorous, um, and that's what's happening right now. So I teach the January to, to April third semester, and that uh, that gives me a bit of time in the fall and summer to be away from campus if I need to be for whatever reason. <laughs> awesome. Good for you. Okay, um, I want to jump into the MWAC, uh, MWC, yeah, MWAC. Yep in a bit but you know we're kind of on this I guess career progression stuff and you've obviously been interested in wildlife your your entire uh, career and your younger eight years as well so let's talk a little bit about where that came from you mentioned Ontario before so I'm guessing you grew up in in Ontario is that correct and most of my more formative years were in Alberta so in okay. Red Deer in, in Calgary um, so generally a, a suburban kid and um, you know, there might be a, a forest or something at the end of the block that we used to spend time in. But I guess I, the bug that really bit me was in my teens, I ended up getting into fishing. I just, I had an uncle that would take me out when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 to, you know, uh, catch bluegills with worms or whatever back east when I was visiting my grandparents. And um, I just got really interested in that. And, and my parents thought, you know, heck, this is better than you know, video games or whatever other kind of trouble Adam could, could get into. And, and so they really, uh, I would say, nourished fishing for me. It became the, you know, all well, my birthday presents and Christmas gifts and everything started shifting to fishing gear. And, uh, and they would drive me when I couldn't drive. They would take me to places and just kind of drop me off and um, <clears throat> just fell in love with it. I wasn't very good. And um, I used to lose a lot of lures you know, in the rocks and everything. So I, and then I would see people fly fishing and I saw that flies were a lot cheaper. So then I started getting into fly fishing because I thought if I'm going to lose something, it might as well be $2 instead of $8. <laughs> yep. I feel that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, so then um, where, where did, where did you do your schooling at? Was it obviously went did an undergrad and then where, yep. where to? Where um, so so enter like last year of high school, 
uh, really into fishing. So I, this is back in the day when we had phone books. I don't know if you guys remember that, but looked through the phone book to fish and wildlife in Calgary and called the office. And, and I said, how do I get a job in your office? And they said, we generally hire people from a couple of these community colleges. So I applied to, uh, I applied to them and, and ended up at Lethbridge community college and did two years there. And it was incredible. There was a lot of folks that were <clears throat> coming back from universities to to take part in that program. I, I didn't know any different, but for the first time in my life, I was learning about stuff I was really interested in. And it was soils, it was range ecology and identifying grasses, um, you know, vertebrate zoology or putting together bones and, and doing telemetry. And it was just real hands-on and, um, and not very pretentious and just getting outside we had these field semesters or field weeks so we'd be out for a couple of weeks at the beginning and end of each uh sort of school year and out with our classmates learning how to do a tree core and lay out a transect and all those all those things that i've learned in the university are really hard to to find time and space for uh in the, in the way that we deliver education in the university so it's really quite helpful to have that hands-on stuff and then flip that into a uh, an undergrad degree at UVic in geography and resource management. And then started, you know, around that time I was guiding or working at a horse barn or whatever, just kind of doing work around and um, guiding was great. I did it for three summers and uh, I felt like we, we did pretty well, like did some new techniques. So there's a lot of pike fishing and walleye and grayling up on the Mackenzie River in the Northwest Territories. Um, so just, yeah, ripping around in a boat and and uh, taking different folks out to, to teach them how to fish. And it was like this other level of catching a fish, you know, it was like the fish, what the fish is doing, the weather, and then translating what I knew about these pike and, and what the person was interested in and trying to get them to catch a fish on, in their own way. So that was a bit of a challenge, but uh, it was around that time that I thought, okay, here I am. I think this is like the NHL of fishing. Like I'm getting paid to be a, to fish. I can fish as much as I want. Is this what life is about? And one of these people in my boat said, Adam, being a fishing guide is great. You know, as in my early twenties, being a fishing guide is great, but you want to be the guy that hires the fishing guide, not the one that is the fishing guide. And I thought, well, that's, that's a good idea. So then I went back to school, but I can tell you this, I've never hired a fishing guide since. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, good. So you, you did your undergrad at UVic and then, uh, and then, so where did, cause that's quite, quite a dichotomy from where you are today, from what you were t doing with, with your undergrad, right? Uh, yeah. So UVic, <clears throat> I went there because of a girl and it worked out pretty well. <laughs> nice. um, and then, and then I worked as a janitor for a few years and, and traveled around the world, like as people often did back then, like the backpack to Thailand sort of thing and did, had some time in uh, Africa. And um, I was working with, uh, with my best friend at a children's camp and cleaning toilets and whatnot and reading a lot of books. And, uh, and then I started applying for graduate school and that's when I got got quite used to getting rejected for things around that time. I, I don't know how many people I applied to, 20 or so, and 
heard back from a couple and, and most of the, most of the things I heard back from were no. And uh, eventually one person said yes. And that, that opened the next door for me. So I was pretty thrilled when I, when I got that response. And what was that in then? That was in Ottawa at Carleton University with Dr. Lenore Ferrig, who works on a lot of different uh, critters, generally small things, not, not large mammals. Um, but she has done some pretty important work on landscape ecology and, and the idea of like what's the effect of habitat fragmentation on, um, on biodiversity and also road ecology. And so I went out there and spent two years chasing chipmunks near roadsides <laughs> and <clears throat> trying to figure out why did the chipmunk cross or not cross the road? Uh, <laughs> and there's, yeah, some pretty silly methods about that. What was use. the, what was the consensus on that? Why did they cross the road? They didn't. It, oh, okay. it took all summer. We tracked like seven kilometers worth of different you know, chipmunks in the forest, like poison ivy swamps in, in the Ottawa area. We use these little tracking spools where you'd, we put a, a spool of thread inside a balloon and then glue that balloon to the back of the chipmunk and it would and then let it go in the forest and it would run around and come back the next day and, and map out the string that it left behind in the forest because they're too small for gbs colors right so uh, we got some fine scale movement data and i think the it was the first chipmunk or something crossed the road and then none of them after that so we kind of wrecked the study because we we're supposed to figure out like you need a certain sample size of these yeah. things to happen to to prove the point but it, it never really happened but anyways it got me thinking about movement ecology and uh, road ecology and so after that it was applying for all the jobs again getting all the all the no's again getting all the rejections and then getting lucky and I had a short-term gig working on burrowing owls out of Suffield uh CFB Suffield in eastern Alberta and that was another dream job uh, what year so, was that oh gosh uh I want to say like oh seven or something. Did you stay in a place called Bine Loss? Did you stay in the house there? Some folks did in our okay. crew. Yeah, I was in yeah. Ralston. Because I knew the guys in Bine Loss, the burrowing owl guys. Oh yeah? yeah, yeah. There's like six people in that town, and you're all <laughs> yeah. related. Well, there was twelve when the burrowing owl guys were. In the <laughs> right. Yeah, it was a big project. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I don't know, and and someone you know gave me the keys to a to a new F one fifty or <clears throat> something and to go go find these birds and yeah I had a spotting scope all the pronghorn I wanted to see you know just out there on the prairie by myself it was it was a great summer um did some analysis with that group later and then eventually a job one of my earlier no's turned into a yes and and this project on the Trans Canada Highway in Banff opened up and so I got to live in Banff for a few years and work on the, the road ecology work there um, with the crossing structures and the, the fencing. And that was another one of these moments where I felt like I, I made the NHL because growing up in Calgary, you know, Banff was just this amazing, amazing place, special, very special place. And, and not very many people actually got to live there. So I was so excited that I could work and do science. And I found a, an amazing job and a, had another really great mentor, Dr. Tony Clevenger, uh, who helped me uh, you know, do the things I need, needed to do to get to my next step. He just said, you know, where do you want to go and, and how can I help? And, and we are still in touch, you know, on a regular basis. So that's pretty incredible. Very cool. So this was for your master's, is that correct? 
No, it was after my master's. It was after the chipmunks. The master's was the chipmunk thing. And so this was your PhD? It was before my PhD. So I wasn't okay. sure I wanted to, to do all that. I was just sort of working. And then, yeah, contracts would come and go. So it got a bit, I don't know. It got a bit hard for me to, to feel comfortable. Like, how could I like pay a mortgage with this job? Because it, you know, there was some financial insecurity. So I thought I should go back to school and, and maybe upgrade a little bit and, and train myself on some different skills. And uh, my partner at the time wanted to go to Vancouver and I kept looking and kept getting more no's. And then one day uh, a new prof showed up on my search and I applied to him and, and I became his first uh, PhD student. That was Jake Goheen. And, um, and that was another yes that changed my life. Very cool. So what was your PhD? And then Adam? My PhD was <clears throat> based in Kenya, uh, looking at uh, leopards and wild dogs and, and how they scare and eat different kinds of antelope and how that affects the plant community in uh, a rangeland in a place called like Kipia, Kenya. So again, I thought, wow, this is this is the NHL of field ecology. Like, look at all these large mammals that I grew up you know, watching these nature movies and, and like there's a wild elephant, like not a zoo elephant, but just a free ranging elephant or giraffe or lion. And they're just out here where the cattle herders are. It was just mind blowing, still is. Very cool. Um, and who was that? What what university was that through? Who did you do that? That was that was at UBC Vancouver. <clears throat> I was okay. there for, I didn't actually didn't spend that much time in Vancouver proper, but um um, I was there for, yeah, for, that was about four or five years. And then, um, shortly after I arrived, my advisor moved to Wyoming, which I still bug him about, but he maintained my, his status as my advisor. And, uh, we, um, again, like we continue to collaborate on a regular basis and we're trying to get some stuff set, set back up in Kenya right now. So it's all, it worked out really well. Very cool. So then. PhD and then straight into UBC Okanagan or where did you? Then I did a, then I did a postdoc with this group called the Liberty Euro Fellowship and the Liberty Euro Fellowship is a pretty, pretty special program. They, they it, it's focused on conservation in Canada and they want you to bring a, an academic mentor and a, and an applied mentor together to advise the, the fellow, the fellowship. Um, so I worked with John Frixell out of Guelph as my academic mentor, and then had a team of folks from the Yellowstone Yukon initiative, uh, Parks Canada, and uh, kind of in a uh, uncle kind of way, Mark Hebblewhite too from University of Montana. So it was a, it was an incredible team. And uh, yeah, about halfway through, uh, got on to this job here at, at UBC Okanagan. Right on. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that you talked about there that I'd like to to dive into a little bit and uh, kind of the state of, you know, and this is a big one, but um, kind of like we can drill down to a couple little areas that you mentioned earlier. But, you know, the issue around biodiversity uh, in British Columbia, the the uh, challenges that with uh, roads now and, and industry and growth and you know, there's all these issues. And then another one that you jumped into was um, doing uh, wildlife movements uh, studies in Banff. So, you know, a hot topic right now, as we know, is these, this bighorn sheep and radium issue. Yeah. And we had Dr. Lamb on the show. I believe Dr. Lamb was one of your students, was he not? He's a postdoc in our lab right now. 
in that okay. he's a Liberio fellow himself. Okay, cool. So, um, you know, maybe let's touch a little bit on that. And I've heard some conjecture about, you know, is the, is the overpass, the wildlife overpass, the solution in radium that there's areas where they work well. Dr. Lamb, I think he suggested to us that he felt it would work very well with fencing and an overpass. Um, maybe let's just touch a little bit about what you've seen in Banff and, and is radium similar and is that something that we could do in BC? And do we need more of this in BC? Do we need 25 of these across the province or are we, are we good? <laughs> yeah, so uh, they work well. They've worked really well in Banff. <clears throat> There's a couple outside of Banff on the Canmore side of the highway. And one of those has a lot of sheep that use it. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple, a couple of factors that seem to affect use of these structures by different species of wildlife. Some species seem to prefer overpasses and some seem to prefer underpasses and underpass designs vary widely uh, as well. So the most effective design in Banff is basically a, an open span bridge. So just like a large bridge deck, but they have box culverts like you often see, uh, you know, around ranching operations. Um, they have these half dome large culverts for four meters by seven meter big culverts <clears throat> and then even smaller uh two meter like just a uh, tube uh culvert and they all get used by something but they're not as effective as each other so like black bears and cougars seem to like some of those more constrained ones and then uh, grizzly bears and wolves seem to like the more open ones and then some of these structures, it seems like it wouldn't matter what design it is. It's just in a spot where animals need to cross the highway. Um, maybe because there's a carcass pit or something nearby or, or a river valley or whatever. They just seem to want to cross. So the statistics of trying to figure out what's what's driving the use of these sites is a bit of a head scratcher. But in generally, generally speaking, it's, um, it's a combination of design and location. And the fencing is what reduces the roadkill. So that's what I think a lot of people get confused about in this conversation of road mitigation is it's kind of easy to, to keep animals from getting on the road, especially ungulates. Those fences are generally like 80 to 90% effective at reducing roadkill. So that's a pretty good number. Um, every now and then, a, you know, the fence fails, a log falls on it, or animals seem to, to squirm out of a gap in the bottom. So there's, there's a few things that people can do to make them more effective, but generally speaking, the fence is what keeps animals from getting onto the road. So at minimum, if it's a roadkill problem, you can, you can fence it. And that's about <clears throat> $75 a meter. So I'm sure the price varies over time. I don't know what it would be now, but it was in Banff. It was about that. So, um, so then the overpasses or the crossing structures maintain population connectivity. So they help animals migrate and get the food and the mates and escape predators as they need to, um, and it's a little, a little bit harder to measure success there. If you see an animal using a structure, you know that they're using it, but is it is it enough to maintain population or gene flow? Um, is it enough to bolster the, the population size and, and keep it more stable? Those are still some questions that we're, we're trying to figure out in the scientific community. And then it's like, how many of these do we need? Do we need them every um, five kilometers, every two kilometers? And then with overpasses, they're a bit more expensive um, and they vary quite a bit in design. So the early ones in Banff were 50 meters wide and they put a lot of overfill or top fill. So they're trying to grow a little forest up there. And so they had to make them really, really strong to hold all that soil. And they've like almost full-size trees are 
growing out of the top of some of those things. Uh, there's one of the earlier overpasses in North America was built just outside of Kelowna here, um, going up to the Penask. And, uh, and it's like, I haven't been up there. You're, you're not supposed to go up there. And, but I think it's like a, almost like a bike or like a pedestrian bridge or something. So it's quite, quite narrow. There isn't a lot of screening on the side. So when animals are up there and there's cars going by, like it, it's a bit exposed, but when you're on one of those overpasses in Banff, <clears throat> uh, it feels like you're just in, in the forest. Like it doesn't feel like there's four lanes of traffic underneath your feet. Right on. So that was with your Banff stuff, you were studying that specifically that, and were, were you studying um, whether or not they'd be effective or is it something you were studying that you're, you were, were you trying to determine if we, they should be put in or, or the, the results of having them put in? Yeah. Great question. It, it was a long-term monitoring project. So okay. I don't know where we're at now, 15 years or so of, of data that we have in, in our hands, but it, it, to some extent, Parks Canada said, we know they're working, so we're going to just change our monitoring procedures a bit. Um, but we learned that it's important to monitor some of these things for a long time. So, so the response for some of these species was pretty weak in the beginning, and that's like the first three to five years. But over time, especially for, for longer lived species like grizzly bears, the use has increased at a rate that they think is far faster than the, the you know, than the population would grow. So they think it, it must be that they're learning to use them. And, you know, probably, you know, mothers are teaching it to cubs and, and it's just growing within the population. Right on. So then I, I guess the radium, it's pretty clear that there's a benefit to having that overpass there. It, it, it seems like it's a, a logical logical place for it. And then the other one is, you know, why aren't there five or six through the Rockies in, in right. on the uh, Trans-Canada is another one, right? It, you, yeah. You're going through and there's sheep literally standing on the side of the road, which is great to see. But you're like, and then, of course, the mortality rate's pretty high there. Yeah, I think too when you when you put a lot of pressure on the land, that's one of the one of the ways to kind of relieve or mitigate broader impacts. So, I'm thinking of outside of Kelowna here. There's you know rapid uh, expansion into into winter range, ungulate winter range right now, for agriculture, and some of these animals are going to lose like you know there isn't a lot of low elevation grassland left in the Okanagan, and so getting access or improving access to what's left is probably something that people should be contemplating when they're approving large-scale land transformations or native grasslands to egg operations, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, let's let's segue a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of the work that you've done is around uh, movement ecology, wildlife, road ecology, uh, biodiversity. Let's talk a little bit about that. And, and we've seen that with your students. Um, we see the work that Siobhan's doing, talking about movement of cougars and um, predation. Uh, I think well, you, were you, you're involved with uh, the Mulder study and Chloe, mm -hmm. um, and obviously Laura's doing work on goats. And uh, mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about, I guess, road ecology in BC and, and movement ecology. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're hearing all the time is there's just way too much uh, development, way too many roads in the province. Um, and that, you know, we have to reclaim some of those, do some something different there. What's your kind of thoughts on that on, at a high level? Yeah, so I mean, the Auditor General had that report uh, around the time that the grizzly bear hunt uh, was banned, and that in that report they said that there's 10,000 kilometers of resource roads built every year in this province. That's a quarter of the way around the Earth. 
So since that report was released, BC alone has built enough resource roads to get around the entire earth. And I think that's a, that's a jaw dropping number for being 2022. Mm -hmm. If, if that rate of development has continued, we're learning that it's hard to keep track of where road development is happening. So we've got a, a project underway right now to, to quantify mountain roads and, and, car <clears throat> and caribou range because it's not clear where they are or what condition they're in. And when we think about the effects of roads on, on wildlife, especially resource roads, if they're ingrown, and, and you guys have probably been on some of those like alder filled roads, you know, and getting willow whipped on your quad or whatever, like it's it's a different kind of road than, you know, one that's that sees a truck every hour on mm -hmm. it and in terms of its impact on the local landscape and its ability to facilitate movement of predators and provide forage for moose and deer and, and caribou country. So um, we need a better handle on the state of the roads in this province. And and the best way to do that for us right now is, is using satellite, high resolution mm -hmm. satellite imagery. It's not a ground-based thing because there's probably too many of them and, and people, people built them to, to pull trees off the land and they don't really need to go back to them. So I think one step is getting a good handle on the inventory and then i know there's there's a number of efforts around the province to plan how do they how do they reclaim roads or sections of roads to reduce some of the impacts of them so if you can you know block off a road at a at a key node or intersection you're gonna decommission access to a lot of land it's not gonna it's not really gonna change the predator prey ecology but at least keep some of the motorized activity from parts of the landscape if that's a priority for management yeah, it definitely allows uh, things to kind of reclaim to go back to the earth if if you're keeping uh, motorized vehicles out of there. Like I, I can speak firsthand. Every time after the 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 winter melt and the spring starts kicking off up here in PG, when we go out for our bears, we're like, oh, that road wasn't here last year. Oh, yeah. that road wasn't here in the fall. And there's just countless of countless of them every single years, and they're just just exploding. So yeah. it's yeah. The the, uh, the best ways with anything for management is to get a, a good baseline inventory. So yeah, that's it's crazy. Yeah, and then work backwards from there. So if um, you know if it's it's determined that it's a priority to you know to block some of them or to, to shut them down for at least temporarily to give the land a rest, you know, <clears throat> then we got to get that get everybody on the same page about you know doing the X's and O's on the map. Like where where are you gonna do what in different areas, and so. That's another more complicated conversation to, that will follow. So just out of curiosity, Adam, from what you've seen in your studies, do you have any comparative data for British Columbia compared to other jurisdictions when it comes to road densities? Or how do we sit in comparison to um, other provinces and, and I guess other states where there's, you know, the biodiversity that we have in BC? That's a good question, Kyle. I, I couldn't give you a number on that one, but... I have seen the papers are coming out and part of the question or part of the, the challenge there is everybody's got a different kind of map of what the roads are. And if, right. if you don't know how many resource roads are in BC, we don't expect, you know, other jurisdictions to, to do so for us as well. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of work to be done on getting the count figured out right in the first place. There's no standardized, I mean, all the big roads, the big paved roads. Yeah, that's all, that's all done but it's all those resource roads. I think we don't really have a, a good handle on right now. It's interesting. Uh, you know, you're talking about this and, and this is a segue outside of the province, but uh, you talked about your work in Kenya and we had a lady on the podcast, Sue Tidwell, um, who 
done a bunch of um, traveling in Kenya, just, you know, not, not from the scientific community. She was just over there kind of on her own abolition and, and on a safari. And uh, so we, we, I did a bunch of reading about Africa and it, it, they're talking about this exploding middle, um, uh, uh, middle income group, I guess. So, um, and that, that it's, uh, there's going to be a massive growth in Africa. It's going to be one of the emerging economies um, that, and, they were talking about six-lane highways going through um, the middle of Kenya, and it's going to have a huge impact on wildlife there. And it's the biggest threat by far to wildlife from what I'm reading. Is, is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, there was some pretty rapid change during the time that I was there frequently. And um, and I, yeah, I've been back for a few years, so I, I don't know where it's at now. But some major uh, energy and pipeline corridors going through some pretty wild country. And that coupled with... You know, well, there's in foreign investment that's driving some of this or making it easier to acquire. So w when I was there, there was a lot of um, uh, Chinese presence. So it's it's flipped from being kind of driven by by the UK or by British companies in the in the colonial times in Kenya to uh, it seemed like there was a lot more, you know, uh, Chinese heavy equipment and and yeah, just the, the companies that were building these big roads and upgrading railways and, and whatnot. So that's just sort of the story of, of the earth, I guess. It's it's happening there. It's happened here. And, um, you know, hopefully folks like us can can support these efforts at home and, and abroad to give people the right tools to make good decisions. Yeah, very cool. So, you know, where you sit in a position of academia and you're, you're doing all these studies and you've done a lot of work around uh, ecology and about uh, biodiversity in the province and and your role on the Minister's Wildlife Advisory Council as well, which we'll get to in a minute. What, what are you kind of seeing like is the low hanging fruit? What's the stuff that we really need to jump on? Like, you know, if you, if you waved your wand and said, let's fix this right now for wildlife, what would that be? What would be your kind of, what would be your smoking, your silver bullet that that's going <laughs> to fix everything? Or what's the highest priority? I guess? No pressure. Just listen to me. I'll tell you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Gosh, I don't, I, you know, if there was, if there was one simple thing, we would have done it, I think. So I'm sorry to say it that way, but uh, I, I would think there's a lot of folks that are looking for that, Kyle, and, and it would be nice. Um, I don't think the world is that simple for wildlife in BC and it's changing so fast. Like what worked six months ago or what worked two years ago may not work in two years from now. Um, so within that, I think, yeah, getting, getting a handle on resource extraction and finding, I think, I guess the biggest thing that I, maybe this is another way to put it. The biggest gap or problem I see is that with few exceptions, there's nobody in the regulatory side of, of impact. So government, the regulators that, that speak for a particular parcel of land. So there's no one that says, okay, on this like one hectare right here, um, I'm in charge of it and I don't want to see, or I want to see these certain kinds of impacts or, or these certain activities at a certain time of year. That's not how it's done. Agencies regulate activities. So they, so there'll be a, a person or a group that regulates the range that regulate and a different group that regulates the forestry activity and a different group that regulates habitat and a different group that regulates the populations of wildlife 
And if they're hunted versus not hunted, they're different groups yet again. And then they're different groups that manages watersheds and water flows. So there's no one there to in those groups to speak for that piece of land. They're just talking to to uh, to the uh, to the operators. And I think that's where you get cumulative effects building up and things falling through the cracks and no one saying, okay, what do we want? What's our vision for the big picture here? Well, I guess part of it too there, Adam, is that, um, you know, uh, so Adam's got kids, I got dogs. So you can pick one, you get the dogs for now. Um, I, and I've got the quietest house. What the hell is going on? That's just weird. <laughs> um, so with regards to, uh, you, you know, that aspect and, um, the cumulative effects, there's never been so much pressure on wildlife or on the landscape as there is now, right? Like it, you know, we didn't have, and we, even just the non-consumptive user, you know, you got people out there backpacking and hiking and, and, and so even there alone, and actually I think that we're kind of special in BC still, what do we have, you know, the, the land mass and four or 5 million people in, in the province? Well, it's bigger than that, obviously. But um, wh whereas we look at the state of California with hundreds of millions of people, right, um, in a similar size. So, uh, but we're just going to see more and more pressure on the landscape. Um, and so I think it's coming to a head now, too, because of all this pressure that's being put on from everything, industry, consumptive, non-consumptive users, everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a moment uh, a year or two ago where I was, standing north on the highway north of Revelstoke, you know, there was this huge dam in front of me. Um, there was a sign that says no snowmobiling over here and over here because of the, to protect caribou range. Uh, there is uh, a massive, you know, there's not a massive, there's logs coming out on the back of trucks, continuing to, to come out. Um, obviously on a highway. Um, there was, there was a wolf, Cull or wolf removal program happening, as well as uh, liberalized moose harvest in that area, and all sorts of places where you couldn't cut trees. So, like, there was just all of these levers and activities going this way and that way on the same in the same valley, and I just thought, wow, this is a lot of pressure here. And, and in that case, I think it was largely driven by caribou. Other places don't receive so much attention if they don't have that value to it. Uh, of protecting caribou populations, but it, it just it just really was kind of jaw dropping how much pressure there was in this one spot, and you just can find that all across this province if you look for it. Well, that's a scary part. It takes the extirpation or or extinction of a species to actually people to pay up pay attention. You know now, and then even that is becoming controversial. You know, there's all this stuff going on around the wolf call and caribou, but yeah. nobody really cared until caribou were in jeopardy. And now we're going, holy shit! There's a problem here. We need to do something. Yeah. But it took losing a species or almost losing a species before we actually sat up and paid attention. And, and the question that we always ask, it scares me, and I know you do too, is what's next? What's the next one? Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially for these big ones. I mean, it's, I mean, I know some people picked up on this, but the, but the United States lost a, a large mammal, the continuous or conterminous lower, lower 48 lost a large mammal species in the last five years. Like caribou used to be in Idaho. And now the, the Southern range of the, of the caribou in Canada has moved 175 kilometers North, you know, and it's going to be up to the trans Canada highway, probably, in the next few years, like if things go the way that they are. So 
<clears throat> that rate of change is very fast. And for something as iconic as the caribou, what else are we missing? You know, what are what are the other creatures and and lichens and and flowers and different different species that are not on people's radar that we're losing at that rate or faster? And that's also uh, scary and uh, kind of a failure of of a combination of things, including the laws that we have set up to protect biodiversity and you know maybe our underlying ethic as a society about what, where these things land in our list of priorities. Okay, so Adam, you know, we talked about, um, you know, pressure on the landscape and and, and the big idea, everything, you know, the, the Hail Mary that's going to save wildlife. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, there, there's all this pressure, there's going to be increased pressure on wildlife. You know, we look again, like California was such a big, uh, uh, big population base and all this pressure. Um, so we're just going to see more and more of that in BC here. So you talk about pressure on, on managing the resource and what can we do. So, and here's one I'm going to pitch at you, actually. If we look now, um, we've got this change in government happening. It's evolving as we speak, literally right at this very moment where they're creating this new ministry of uh, natural resources, basically. So it's going to be more centric on, I guess, uh, the resource per se. Is that the solution or, or what, what did you have in mind with your big picture about, you know, managing, because uh, we're not managing holistically, we're managing piecemeal, right? That, that's the issue that you point to. So, you know, is, is this natural resource, um, I guess, ministry going to be the, the, the save all for wildlife or is it just another piecemeal? Yeah, I wish I wish I had that crystal ball to understand how it's going to work with this new ministry. And as you say, like we're going to get more details about that probably pretty soon here. <clears throat> but I, I think we I think we need to shift the responsibility uh, of these groups that regulate and, and manage individual resource use uh, to managing holistically. So managing, I think managing a place. Um, so so rather than you know, one one person in the office managing the range branch or the, the, the you know, grazing and someone else ma managing timber, like let's manage this valley or this watershed. And someone can can try to look at it hol holistically um, and then look for those indicators or those objectives to see if the management is is supporting or moving towards meeting those objectives. Um, we spent a lot of time <clears throat> in science and in the, the science that I kind of came up with over the last, gosh, 30 years or so from different parts of my education and reading and whatnot, um, really trying to understand the impacts of like the negative impacts of human activity on wildlife or biodiversity. And one of the reasons why we ended up calling the lab, the wildlife restoration ecology lab, or, or the group of folks that, that I, uh, supervise at the school, um, is because we want to understand the impacts of putting things back, understand the impacts of fixing stuff. And that's a much more uh, inspirational and optimistic place to work in. It's also hard. Uh, you got to get people on board to do the stuff, uh, whether it's burns or, or road management or whatever it is. Um, and, and putting in place things that give us a sense of success. So, you know, I talked to you guys about the, the wildlife crossing structure work, you know, in Banff and really that it was this long-term view of, um, of measuring success. Like are these investments in this, in this costly transportation infrastructure 
paying dividends uh, for biodiversity. And I think we need to think about that for things like prescribed fires and whatever else we're going to do is to invest as uh, deeply into uh, measuring uh, measuring success and know that we're, you know, when we're in putting money into a uh, prescribed fire, um, that we're actually putting more, you know, more sheep for, for you folks and your listeners, like putting more sheep on the mountain. We need to know what that looks like. <clears throat> and that starts with science and, uh, and cooperation with, uh, with all the people that are involved. Yeah, well said. You know, and BC is out. You know, put let's put the beautiful back in BC. Let's, uh, you know, they talk about the Serengeti of the North in northern British Columbia, and then you know I've been out there and on the landscape, and and you know you look around and there's all this terrain and there's no animals. You know, you're like, what what's going on here? And and we know there's dwindling uh, population species in certain areas, as we know caribou, for example, moose. You know, list goes on and on and on. So. I guess that's the one thing that always interests me is, you know, there are some pretty successful management models in the U S right. You know, there's some jurisdictions that are doing a pretty darn good job. Is it just about the money? Is it, uh, or do they manage it differently? Do they manage it holistically? And they look at it and say, what's the best thing for civilization and this piece of land? Um, you know, is this the, what's the the correct thing? Or do they, do they say, no, no, you know, we have timber things and we have, you know, exploration and we have this and that, you know, that it's all driving this. Are we being driven exclusively by economics in the province or, you know, what, what is the real problem? You know, it's, we know there's these, these issues, but, and who's done a better job? I, I don't have those answers. And I know that's not your specialty either, Adam, but, uh, you know, there are jurisdictions doing a heck of a lot better. But one thing I think is consistent is the areas that are doing better, there's more money there. That's one thing I, I'm pretty clear on me. And Steve, you can probably speak this better than I can, I, you know, but it seems to me that if there's money there, um, you have a better chance of success because you can do things on the landscape that are going to benefit wildlife. Yeah, and that's what it boils down to, right? It costs money for people like Adam to do his research. Like I can go out there and drive around on a bear hunt and go, I saw this, but as we spoke on earlier in the podcast, unless it's repeatable, it's not considered a good base model. So yeah, it, unfortunately that there's a great saying out there. A good friend of mine says, he goes, the moose don't need money. However, <laughs> the studies do, right? So we, we can dump millions and millions of dollars at moose, but unless we've got a, a dedicated plan for that money to, to, to improve uh, wildlife and habitat, we're, we're spinning our wheels. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. I mean, <clears throat> you, you do see it in the U.S. I mean, in some of these states are they don't have that many people compared to British Columbia, but their funding is pretty good for wildlife. And uh, you know, think about you know the the hundreds of mule deer that Wyoming has on on air at any given time. You know we're putting together, I think what would be the province's like largest mule deer study in history. And, you know, we're like trying to get, you know, over a hundred animals on air after a few years. And it's, it's a huge effort and, you know, good, good for us. Like it's, it's coming together and that's through a lot of partnerships and cooperation, but it seems, it seems like from here, it's like a snap of the fingers and, and those guys down there in the States can just get these animals collared and, and and tell a great story about uh, conservation and stewardship as they work with a lot of different agencies and landowners to do things like opening up uh, migration corridors and getting wildlife friendly fencing going and just chipping away at the problem. And and the bigger these 
you know, these studies and the attention that they get, the more people kind of get behind them. Like they have kind of a, uh, a way catching fire, so to speak, and, and people want to hop on board and, and keep it going. So I think we're personally, we're at that stage with some of these projects and, and we look to the States as some of the States to see, well, what are the, what are the feedbacks there between the science and the decision makers? Uh, what are the, the funding mechanisms they've used to keep some of these studies going in the long term, and and how do they bring together, yeah, the, the findings of those of those research projects, and then and change things on the ground for the better. So there's yeah. tons tons of lessons for us to learn down mm-hmm. there. But mm-hmm. certainly having stable funding, um, it's not just the shiny object. It's not just like a flash in the pan funding, but stuff that that everybody can rely on year after year. Um, and we don't, we know that, you know, we have confidence that we can invest in, uh, people, um, to do the work, um, and that the data is going to be accessible to the public. Um, and that, and that we're going to be able to, uh, get a lot of, make a lot of hay for, or get a lot of juice for the squeeze, I guess, is the way to put it, uh, from (laughs) the investment in that science. Well, our, our nearest neighbor to the South, Washington state, they have, they put, $831.52 per kilometer squared onto the landscape. And BC puts $36 into the same landmass. So you you can see where the ball is being dropped, right? It's in Idaho, 488. Oregon, 701. Montana, 186. Utah, 386. And here we are. Thirty-six. That works up to seven dollars and thirty-six cents per person. That's where the ball's being dropped. So that I think we've we've ridden on the coattails of of having a large landmass that has been largely undisturbed for for a long time without turning our attention to managing cumulative impacts. And where it's changing quickly is, um, you know, with uh, you know the reinvigoration of indigenous-led conservation and First Nations taking a different stand with government on how to manage land in their territories. So um, we're seeing that with caribou especially, and some of our group is working with the, with the caribou and the Klinziza herd, and that herd has turned around threefold uh, through a, a variety of um, management actions, but it included a pretty heavy, heavy investment in that herd from the federal government and the provincial government. So there is a there is a role for money to play there, um, and then we're seeing a, an acknowledgement in this Blueberry River First Nations hearing or decision from last summer um, about how cumulative effects have have you know transpired to prevent people from hunting and fishing, and the implications of that for treaty rights. And I think there's going to be a lot more fallout from that decision last summer um, in the coming in the coming years. And, and you guys have probably heard some of the discussion about moose management in Northern BC. And I think that's part of that conversation. So I guess this is a great transition point for us that to kind of go to our last topic that I wanted to hit you up on Adam is, is the new management model in British Columbia. So um, for, for years, um, you know, we've had a pretty consistent model, but um, I think it started with a liberal government. This is, it's not political per se, but uh, liberal government started a, a new program basically um, together for wildlife, which is a standalone dedicated um, funding model for the province. Um, and with the hopes that we can, you know, get more funding more easily from outside resources, people trust a non-government entity to do a better job of managing 
that aspect of it was was part of the argument. Um, so we've got this new model. Um, I now, and Adam, I know you're in the throes of it because you serve part of it, but it's uh, together for wildlife basically. Um, there's a number of moving pieces. Um, there's a co-management piece. There's First Nations and uh, our provincial government working together to manage wildlife. So there's that aspect of it. Um, and then one one important piece of that that you serve on, Adam, and, and I'll let you talk to this, is um, the Minister's Wildlife Advisory Council, MWAC. So you serve on that uh, council. Uh, you're a member there. You were independently selected. It was a very rigorous process. I, I'm sure there were hundreds of applicants across the province that wanted to be part of this. And you serve with, um, talk, tell us a little bit about MWAC and your role and, and what you guys do and what purpose you serve. Uh, yeah, thanks, Kyle. Yeah, it's it's definitely been an exciting uh, journey to uh, hop on board this, this council. Um, there's some really inspirational leadership from across the province um, that they, we come together about once a month or so. Um, and, and a big part of it, the work so far has been trying to understand how government works, the, the people, most of the people that are on the council um, are not government workers or, or from the government formally. There's a couple that are, yeah, retired government folks, but mostly people aren't. So it's it's trying to understand if we make a suggestion or a recommendation to the minister, how does that fit into all the other ministries and all the other advisory bodies that that minister is listening to? So that's been a big part of it. And it's kind of surprising that you know, we keep learning new things about, well, there's a whole other group that's doing that too. And no wonder it's so hard for government to kind of put priorities out there because there are a lot of these groups like the advisory council, but for different parts of the ministry and, and outside of, you know, there's another environment ministry too, if you remember like Ministry of Environment and Climate Change, BC. So there's a lot of moving parts uh, and and that's a challenge, um, but it's nice to have that sounding board and that common ground to come together with ideas. And the way that we've managed our work uh, over the last couple of years is to kind of split up into uh, little working groups. Um, and those working groups are generally focused around some of the main goals of Together for Wildlife. So I my handy bro color brochure here. And, uh, you know, there's... <clears throat> Yeah, this is all available online so people can can check it out but there's five goals and they have to do with things like setting objectives and funding and reconciliation uh the the place where i invested most of my my time and energy is around goal two which is about data and information because i'm a scientist um and so we we're able to push to get a, a research working group uh organized and i co-chair that with um uh, uh uh, Dr. Kari Stewart-Smith um, and you know there's I don't know five or six of us on that group and yeah, we're able to make recommendations to the minister about funding um, uh, things like investment in the pr pr providing data to the public that the government's already collected so you would be surprised but maybe not too surprised that there's been a lot of research done in this province it's not always easy to get that data to do something with it so it's kind of like a file drawer problem where, you know, staff have, have collected some telemetry data from some callers and it, it doesn't go anywhere. So we, the science community or the research community can't really use it. Um, and then we're, yeah, we're looking at how we can enhance the role of science and decision-making for the province with that working group. Um, there's some uh, budget line items or our allocations to support uh, interactions between 
the council, or sorry, between Together for Wildlife and the Ministry and post-secondary institutes. So we're again, we're looking at the United States for things like their USGS uh, co-op units. So some of the more famous wildlife shops you've heard of in the US are probably uh, a co-op unit, which is a, a federally funded, US federally funded uh, uh, research staff are embedded in universities. So this really ties together that we're close to the gap between the research at the university and the decision makers by say having, you know, choose your favorite, you know, government biologist, they would, they would be down the hallway from me at the university. And that gives us uh, an opportunity for better collaboration and, and to uh, leverage resources uh, for research together. So we're looking at that as a, as a model, we, you know, it's still at the stage of, uh, looking at the details and is it really gonna work and do we need to you know, reinvent the wheel or do we have a lot of this stuff in, in place already in BC, we just call it something different. So we're, we're definitely looking for a made in BC solution with, with that uh, goal in mind. Um, and then in the big picture, uh, the council is you know, very diverse. Um, I, I was surprised at how big it was at first, um, but now that I see how it's working with these working groups, it makes a lot of sense to have people with uh, particular expertise uh, kind of stewarding these uh, these little working groups. So I don't know much about finances and conservation funding, but there's people that do. And and it's great that they're interested in, in changing that conversation for the whole province. And, um, you know, we're allowed to swap and go to these different working group meetings if we want to. Um, and yeah, I think that there's going to be some more some more challenges ahead as we look at this reconciliation piece and, and kind of, like I said, that Blueberry River First Nation um, decision, I think is gonna, it's gonna take up a lot of oxygen in the room and probably, you know, for the, for the right reasons, but it's just gonna take us some, some processing to navigate that one. Yeah, so there's a lot there with, um, with the reconciliation piece and, and love to talk about it, but just based on time, we, we, you know, we're not going to do it justice in the time we have left, but um, so, you know, maybe you get back, back on here um, at some point to, to chat on reconciliation, but um, with regards to together for wildlife, one of the things I heard, I was part of a, um, the minister held uh, minister of Flynn Katrine Conroy held a, uh, uh, I guess a public engagement session with stakeholders. I, I know you were on there, Adam, I was on there as well. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Did you miss that? Okay, sorry. I was in a wall tent that week. Okay, sorry. I didn't mean to throw you out. I uh, under the bus there. My apologies. But um, so I attended uh, that, and it was a good session. But one of the things I'm hearing is that there's optimism, and and I guess um, you know if you could just give us a little bit of your perspective. There's optimism about the process. The one thing I'm hearing though is is like, come on, people. This is taking forever. This has been in place now for a while. Um, and I'm here, I was kind of, that's the sense I got from the council itself is that, you know, we're giving you recommendations and we, you know, we'd like to see things moving along and, and, um, the, you know, there's been money there. This has been in the works now literally for years and there's not enough being done. Um, so, you know, kind of what's your perspective from the inside and, and together for wildlife, not so much AMWAC itself, but together for wildlife, I guess, if you will. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's getting to the point where the details are, are mattering more. So the the big high level discussions have, have kind of are working themselves through, and that's where we've been for a while. Um, one of the one of the key kind of ways that this whole thing is going to roll out is a, is more of a regional approach, and we're trying to figure that out. Or uh, together for wildlife is trying to figure that out now. Um, and again, like that, 
we can, you know, probably the, the three of us here can imagine why a regional approach makes a lot of sense for managing wildlife. Like you might have your regional experts, um, people that know the land a lot better and can speak to it for that area. They've walked it, they know it, they know the people, the communities involved, there's relationships there for better and worse, but you get the right people sitting at the same table together and, and probably with, with healthy facilitation, you're gonna get farther ahead. Um, but if things are, you know, too separated and you're, you're making decisions for Northeast BC from the lower mainland, uh, it doesn't always go over well. So we can see why a regional approach would make a lot of sense, but then the devil's in the details. There already are regional bodies that advise government on things. And, um, and of course, you know, there's, there's, uh, regional governance by way of untreated un or unceded territories. And all these things have to kind of be harmonized if we're going to get to this place where people are making decisions for the land and not just for again like one impact to the land at a time so i think that's going to be you know the optimism is is justified um but i think and the yeah the reason why i'm in this is like we've all we've all seen in the past you know and i don't want to point out any single government or process but we've all seen recommended like studies commission reports and they go on the shelf and not a lot changes. Um, and one of the reasons I signed on to this one is I, I'm cautiously optimistic like that we can do something. And um, so I'm gonna keep investing my energy in it because I, I do believe in the process. And and um, if, it, if it implodes and we tried our best, at least we tried mm -hmm. um, and we'll get back to the, get back to the drawing board. Um, so I guess for the, yeah, I've heard I've heard the urgency, um, and there's people on council that express that urgency often, which is great. Um, I think it's an experiment in, in a certain sense. We haven't had a council like this in the past, so how do we? What's our role? And we're still kind of having those questions all the time, where people are trying to put forward ideas and um, and we're trying to figure out how far they go and what's the right process here. And of course. We have our time on council, but we're also all doing stuff outside of the council with respect to wildlife and conservation. So people wear a lot of different hats and and um, it can be yeah tricky, but also important to come together and, and bring those different perspectives to the room. Yeah, for sure. So I, I we could talk for another hour on this and there's so many topics I'd love to jump into, Adam. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, we get we have you back and there's a reconciliation piece there's, and I think we could talk another hour about MWAC as well. Um, but, um, be respectful of your time here and, um, and we'll wrap it up, but I want to thank you. Thank you for coming on the show and for, um, I, I guess just for your honest and candid, uh, comments on everything, you know, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I like the fact that, you know, you're pragmatic about it. You're optimistic, but you're pragmatic and, um, and just doing great work. And, and I love seeing, um, you know, these new faces of wildlife, you know, this, this energy and this excitement and, and this passion and you having a voice at the table. It's great that academia is at the table, you know, influencing this um, and, and not just um, from a study perspective either, right? You know, you're not just out there doing a cougar study or a mule deer study. You're actually influencing policy and influencing the minister. You're on that advisory council and having a say for government. And I think that's really important. So appreciate all you do there. Right on. Thanks. Yeah, it's good chatting with you guys. And um, 
Yeah, I'm just uh, just love to see science get promoted in I mean on your show you guys are doing a great job of that and thanks for giving a voice to the students in our lab and and letting them share their way more interesting stories about catching animals and you know what I do with processing receipts and managing invoices and whatnot but it, it is so exciting to to make that close that loop between you know the boots on the ground science that they're doing and you know how how the minister might uh think about solving bigger problems in this province and being a part of that translation is uh, a pretty important part of uh, what i do absolutely well thank you sir i appreciate it and uh we're definitely having you back on the show we got lots more to talk about so uh yep. yeah we scratched totally. we scratched the surface here this was uh this was our teaser so thank you <laughs>